This is a TBN UK podcast. In this series, you can hear some of the interviews from TBN Meets, where faith meets culture. Hear from Christian ministries, innovators, authors, artists, and creatives. Hello, TBN family, and welcome to TBN Meets. Today, we're joined by Reverend Will van der Haar, pastoral chaplain at HDB Church, and one of the founding directors of the Mind and Soul Foundation. Will has written several books, including his latest, The Power of Belonging. Welcome, Will. Thanks, Janelle. It's great to be here with you. So we'll get into your book in just a moment. But first, just tell us a little bit about your family life here in London, your wife, your children. So I've been here in London for the last 15 years uh, as a priest, originally in Marlebone. Uh, then I was up in Harrow and now I'm down in central London. I'm married to Louis, who is a journalist and she's also involved in ministry with me at HTB. And uh, we've got three children. Um, the oldest is 10 and our youngest is two and a half. Uh, so they keep us pretty busy most of the time. But yeah, I love the city of London. I'm really passionate about particularly mental, emotional health and well-being. And so how many years have you been in ministry kind of all together? Well, I was at Oxford training um, now when I was, I think, 24, I started training. So I'm not going to tell you how old I am today, <laughs> but uh, a, fair, a fairly long uh, time, uh, 15 years a priest. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really rewarding and, and really challenging. It's just, in my view, it's the best job in the world. And so tell me a little bit more about the Mind and Soul charity that you helped to start. Yeah, well, um, in 2005, I was wrapped up in the London bombings at Edgware Road Station because the church I was working for was just around the corner. And um, one way or another, I ended up hosting the emergency services response out of a small hall that we had right by the uh, station entrance. And I was cordoned in. Um, and it was a really, really difficult time, you know. I was really emotionally uh, upsetting. I saw lots of things that were really disturbing. And um, I didn't have any emotional health experience up to that point. Mm -hmm. But about three months after that, I had an anxiety breakdown where I started having a huge amount of panic attacks and uh, really um, uncomfortable sensations around anxiety. And that was the first experience for me um, of a sort of mental health issue. And um, I made a good recovery, um, thanks to the support of some really great friends, one of whom um, I founded this charity with called Rob Waller. He's also the co-author of our new book. He's a consultant psychiatrist. But what we realized was that the church was struggling a little bit with emotional mental health and how to respond. And so we wanted to set something up that would help Christians with emotional and mental health problems. And after doing that and, and obviously going through that whole experience, you've also been involved in the more recent Grenfell Tower. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So our journey with Mind and Soul over the years has enabled us, you know, it's given us the privilege really of supporting people in different contexts of society, particularly around their emotional and mental health. And Grenfell Tower was um, just just the most horrific tragedy, um, obviously for residents and for the whole community uh, in Lancaster West, in Notting Hill. And I was involved because I was mentoring a group down there who had been doing some work out of um, a church. And I got very involved early on, particularly with advisory around counseling, because mm. when Grenfell Tower happened, um, we were inundated with incredibly generous offers from members of community uh, and, and even, even from overseas offering counseling but um, we knew in our organisation that the World Health Organisation's advice was that wouldn't be any counselling work that should be undertaken within one month of a traumatic, traumatic incident like that. Mm. And actually it can be very damaging to people. So we did sort of an informational workshop very early on and instigated something called the Do No Harm Plan, which became a kind of core plan for emotional health recovery for Grenfell. And for the last two years, we've 
being part of a multi-faceted um, group of leaders from the NHS and from local mental health charities to kind of support the mental health recovery response uh, on the Grenfell site and around Lancaster, um, the Lancaster West Estate. So it's been a real privilege and I've, I've worked with some incredible people there. And that's so interesting because so often what you hear is people saying the church doesn't get involved in things like this, where are we when mm. these things happen and in the aftermath and not just in the beginning when it's all hot in the news, but actually the long-term effects. So it's fantastic to hear that you're part of something that's doing that. Yeah, it's been, it's been amazing actually to see how the church has been so pivotal to recovery um, in the Grenfell site. And, um, and it's also been a, a multi-faith and, and no-faith experience. It's been a really amazing development of local community. And um, I've, I've, I've been privileged to be part of this group, as I said, which is a, really the first time that, that, that first sector and third sector organizations have really worked together on healthcare product project mm. um, and the NHS have been amazing normally it's the mm. NHS over here and all of the sort of charitable services over here but the NHS have really involved us and included us because they've realized that actually being integrated with the community and, and having community relationships is the only way that people are going to trust emotional mental health services from a statutory mm. level to, to, to actually to, to deliver so it's, it's been a, it's been a tragedy but it's been an incredible and, and really humbling experience of finding unity and support in the local community. And that really brings me on so nicely to the book, mm. which is all about belonging and yeah. the power of belonging. Yeah. And what you just spoke about talks to that yeah. as well. So what was the inspiration for this book in particular? Well, this book, um really was something developed out of an experience I had in America when I was very jet-lagged and I was running a retreat in the Appalachian Mountains, which are very beautiful and very high. And I, I woke up at about half past five in the morning, very jet-lagged, and I, I, I had this question suddenly emerge in my mind, which was, Will, how do you pick up a snake? And I felt, it was one of those moments where I thought, oh, you know, I felt like God was speaking to me. So I put on my boots and I kind of walked around outside and as I was walking through this forest very early in the morning, wondering what this question meant, the story of Moses came to my mind and Moses was instructed to pick up the snake by the tail. Mm. And uh, that was the moment at which I, that was the seed, if you like, of interest in the book. And the question was about shame, really. Mm. The fact that actually we all feel in some way like an imposter and we try and control the shame narrative either by running away from the snake of shame or by controlling it and mm. kind of holding it by the head. But God instructed Moses to pick up the snake by the tail and then it became a strength to him rather than a weakness. Yeah. So it became a staff rather than the snake enemy. And uh, that was the initiation of, of, of my thoughts around the book. And then Grenfell happened and uh, that was definitely part of the story, was being part of a community which was very dissected, where people were asking big questions about whether they belonged or not. And um, this sense of shame and fraudulence and disconnection, and then this value in really belonging, really came together in our thinking around the book. And we really struck upon the power of belonging, this incredible value which is innate to every human being. Because guilt and shame are such strong motivators, unfortunately, for lots of people, and we see kind of the effects of that played out, not just in life and community, said, but also in leadership. And this book really is kind of a tool for leaders. Can you speak yeah. a little bit yeah. more about how that lends itself? So we, we've interviewed so many leaders for, for the sake of this book, and I do a lot of leader coaching, and Rob does the same. And what, we, what we've consistently found is that success is no measure of a person's joy in leadership. Yeah. In fact, so many leaders we meet, senior leaders, feel like terrible frauds. And many of them are holding on until they can retire, just so they can be themselves again. 
Now, the problem with a fake it to make it proposal is not that you won't make it if you fake it, it's the terror of what happens when you do. Yeah. You spend 10 years of your life pretending to be someone and, and, and actually winning. And then when you're winning, you're supposed to sort of turn around to everyone and say, hey guys, you know, this whole experience is based on a relational lie. <laughs> I'm going to tell you who I actually am now. And then you, you know, you're going to love me and accept mm. me just as I am. So many leaders are locked into this sense of unbelonging. And then shame grows in the shadows of our lives. So shame's this narrative that says, you know, you don't belong. If people knew who you really were, they wouldn't like you, they'd reject you and they'd leave you. And so then we do the whole controlling piece where we try and keep the facade alive. Mm. We just felt there's a better way of leading than that. Because imposter syndrome is so convincing for some people and for some people it really does loom large. I think anyone who's ever led you, me, mm. we can probably testify to that yeah. point of, of what you just said, if people knew who or what I really am, yeah. what would that mean for me? Why is that so much more of a powerful driver than, than the sense of belonging in God? And how important is it that we find that sense of belonging in God and lead from that space? So we all have this innate value in psychology we call belongingness value. So we're, we're built for connection. I believe that as a Christian leader, you know, God has created us for connection. But the opposing force of our desire for belonging is a nervousness about the potential of our rejection. And so we have an opposing psychological force within us which we call the sociometer. And the sociometer measures whether or not we are um, acceptable in society at large. Now, these two opposing forces of needing to belong but then feeling like a rejection are always in turmoil and largely we're biased towards the negative. So we'd largely believe that we're more likely to be rejected than we are to be accepted. That protective function has accelerated, no doubt, under the spotlight of social media, the breakdown of nuclear family, sense of isolation and discombobulation that many people feel and experience in life today. So this feeling of shame, the sense of disconnection, this feeling that actually I'm a fraud, that's grown in society and particularly amongst younger people. But I was reading just this week Michelle Obama talking you know, really powerfully about her own feelings mm. of fraudulence and many other celebrities are starting to talk about it. What we're trying to do here is overcome the shame-based narrative and really connect with the power of belonging, which we believe is a two-track experience. Mm. The first one is that we innately belong to God yeah. and the second one is that we do belong in community and that there's a way of leading more vulnerably where we can actually be real and we don't need to fake it to make it anymore. And vulnerability is a, it's a big word at the moment. Lots of people talk about being vulnerable, like it's okay not to be okay. How do we actually begin to unmask ourselves to enable us to get to that space of vulnerability and therefore feel the power of belonging? When we meet leaders, senior leaders particularly, we start talking about vulnerability, they normally get very itchy. And they, they start saying, well, I, I don't really want to be a bleeding heart in the public square. And I understand that. But I think we need to make a clear distinction between a public persona and a false self. Yeah. You see, when I go to the doctors, I expect my doctor to be wearing a you know, white shirt and a tie and to look smart and smell good and say, you know, hello, Mr. Van der Hart, take a seat. How are you feeling today? I don't expect him to be wearing a dirty T-shirt and mm. kind of having had a big night out the night before, so I'm, not, I'm feeling a bit rough, I'm gonna Google these symptoms. <laughs> having a persona for work is a professional output and that's a good thing. 
But having a false self is something different. Mm. Having a false self is actually not letting anyone know who you really are. The power of belonging comes not through, if you like, pouring out all your private life in the mm. public setting or in a work setting. It comes from being known by a small group of really deeply connected individuals. And that behind each of us as leaders, there should be a small and honest, accountable, nuclear group of people yeah. who we do life with. The good thing about fake it to make it is actually we know we're faking it. Yeah. <laughs> the problem of our society is that even in church settings, I'm hearing more about what I call a version of you. Where people say, oh, this is a version of you. Be the best version of you. Or be the best version of you mm. you can be today. But, but that's even more malign. At least the fake yeah. it to make it people know they're faking it. The version of you people think that there are a hundred different versions of you that are all authentic and actually fit in a Rolodex of other people's authenticity. And that's just not true. So how can, for those leaders, like you said, they don't want to be a bleeding heart in a public square. So I think for some of them, boundaries is always the kind of thing. Where, where do those boundaries begin and end? You talked about a small group of people. How do people be boundaried but are able to still be vulnerable and be as real and authentic as they can be? Well, I, I think about it in terms of concentric circles. You know, start in the very centre. And for me, that's me and God. You know, yeah. God knows me better than anyone in the world will ever know me. He knows every hair on my head. And so the God knows me centre of I belong to God, that's the most important piece of this puzzle of concentric circles. But knowing God is not enough for me to live in this world authentically because I can privatise my relationship with God and avoid any other authentic human relationship. And so I have to have a second circle. And for me, my second circle is my wife, Louis. And so she knows after God, more than anyone else in the world. And then it's maybe my family, my children, my parents. And then beyond that, some really close friends. I was, I was just texting a friend today to say, please pray for me, I've not been sleeping very well. Mm. And he's straight back at me, not saying, oh, you know, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. He's saying, are you doing too much of the wrong thing? Yeah. So he's challenging me. He's not impressed by me. He just cares about me. I'm so, mm. I'm so thankful to him. But I could come on here and, you know, look great and, you know, talk convincingly, but actually be sharing out of a false self, not a true self. I want to be authentic, and we can all be authentic to a level, so long as we have authentic relationships in the back room. If no one knows us, then we can just pretend about who we are. I believe that God's created us in his image, but there's only one identity in us that's true, and we have to know what that is if we're going to then express that to others. And you touched on social media earlier. Do you think that's heightened the way that we seek to belong? Mm. So, I mean, like you said, the sense of the need to belong is innate in us. That, that is yeah. non, that's not for discussion, but has social media really heightened mm. that and taken it to new levels or people going further yeah. to belong? Absolutely. The thing about the success matrix is people believe that if they can find success, they'll find security. Mm. So if I get successful, then I'll be secure. That's not true. Most people who get successful become increasingly insecure. Yeah. But if I start secure, ironically, I'm more likely to find success. So secure people are more likely to find success than insecure people. Mm. And so you start with what you need, you don't end with it. Now, social media very often has created a culture whereby people are saying, well, if I can get more followers or more traction on social media, that's success, and then I'll feel more secure. People mm. will know who I am. But actually, normally, the more traction you get, the less secure you become. So if you look at the lives of some of the vloggers, some of those people are very publicly exposed. Mm. It's very, very costly for them personally, because actually, they, they're beholden to what other people think that they are rather than who they actually are. 
I always find it frustrating when you go on social media and you, you know, I'm trying to, on Facebook, I'm meeting someone new and I'm, I'm, I want to find out who they are in a crowd and, I, and they, they're Justin Bieber and I'm yeah. kind of looking around, you know, Waterloo's train station trying to find the person who looks like Justin Bieber and then they turn up and it's, it's not them. Yeah. You know, it's this desire to be somebody else. And it all comes back to the biblical story of the fall. You know, Adam and Eve were unique. They were naked yet they weren't ashamed in the garden. And then when they, they chose the apple, it was likeness with God was something that they were attaining to. Suddenly it was likeness, not to be like ourselves, but to be like somebody else. And, you know, God's in Christ restored us to his image in us to say, you know, you are my innate child. You are the child that I love. You are unique. You are, you know, created for works I've prepared in advance for you to perform particularly. Mm. And it's that uniqueness of our identity in Christ that does transform our experience. And ultimately that's why belonging to God is the key to the power of belonging. Now the power of belonging is, is just so powerful. And I think, as I've mentioned earlier, it was gr it's great that we're having these conversations in kingdom culture, in mm. church culture. How can we in church culture, we've talked about what social media affects us, how does church culture affect us in this way, and particularly Christian leaders? Well, again, Christian leaders have got a really difficult job on their hands because the model is Jesus. Yeah. And you're trying to lead as a, an example, uh, as well as someone who's been saved by God's grace and is redeemed, but as an example of what it is to live yeah. a holy life. And the standard, the biblical standard for Christian leadership is incredibly high. But that still doesn't mean we need, need to live an inauthentic life. Mm -hmm. And I think church leaders, I always encourage every church leader I coach to have an accountability partner, yeah. but also sometimes to, to, to seek private therapy. Yeah. Um, then actually sometimes paying someone to uh, look after your emotional and mental health and work with you is a safe and authentic space to explore again who you are. Most leaders who break down in leadership, they break down morally and mentally or spiritually, but very often those all have their roots in loneliness, this mm -hmm. feeling of disconnection and a feeling of shame and a desire to if like give themselves something back or not be able to cope with the pressures. And you know, Moses' arms were raised yeah. by others and we need to en enable our arms to be raised by others. But to have our arms raised requires us a level of vulnerability to say, I'm not okay, I need help. Mm. I think lots of leaders block themselves out by saying, you know, I can't demonstrate weakness in leadership. But actually, it's often the demonstration of our weakness that's the, the greatest strength that we can manifest in leadership. As Paul says, you know, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, that his power is made perfect in my weakness. And so this isn't about going to the congregation every week and saying, hey, everyone, I've had a <laughs> terrible <not> <laughs> week. Let me tell you about all the mistakes I've made. Yeah. And let, let me kind of bring this really down to a baseline mm. every single week. But it is about saying at the appropriate time, you know, I need help in this area and I'm receiving help in this area. And this is a model of how you can also receive help. Mm. You know, we're told to, to share the comfort that we ourselves have mm. received. And I think most people in churches today long for their leaders to be human mm. and vulnerable and connected and to demonstrate the power and love of God in their lives. And so do you know any leaders who've implemented this? And also, I guess my next question would be, how has writing this book and kind of seeing some of the things that probably you know, but actually written down in black and white, how has that affected your leadership? Well, some of the leaders that we write about in the book that have really inspired us are people like Jean Vanier, who started Larch Communities, and he loves beyond loves 
people who have severe disabilities and whose society have often cast out. And I, I love his leadership because it's so vulnerable and it's mm. so humble and he's not looking for position or success. His power is manifest in his own security mm. in a loving relationship with God. Um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu is another one who I think has really inspired us, his ability to love beyond borders and to love those who've been derogatory towards him, uh, to see the power of change in uh, racial experience in Africa and mm. you know, his championing of the poor all comes from a secure place of belonging God. Yeah. He has this ability to sort of manifest the love of God in a unique way. And if you've ever spoken to him, he laughs so much. Mm. And, and, and that laughter, that joy, it's just a sign of this sense that actually I'm so secure in who God is. So those leaders have particularly been an inspiration. Writing the book is always humbling because you write these things not to be the expert, but you, you write them because you're, you're interested and you want to change. And I think what it's done for me, and it's certainly what it's done for Rob too, has been this sense that we want to be more courageous. Yeah. You know, the manifesto of the power of belonging is a, is a call to arms. It's a call to actually live this out. We talk about the iconoclastic leader, the leader on a pedestal mm. who's up there and looking great, but it's like, how long is it going to be before the tower mm. falls? There's this model in Portugal called the Castellas who build these human towers. They're about eight mm. sort of levels high. The strongest people stand at the bottom yeah. and the crowd lean around them and all lend their hands. It's like a ministry in church. <laughs> Everyone sort of leans in. And then the next layer and then mm. the next layer of people and then the next place. Some go nine levels high, but it's always the weakest person. It's always a child or a very small person mm. who climbs to the top of the tower and the crowd applaud them. Mm. And I guess we want a model of leadership where, the, where if you like, the, the power is at the bottom, it's mm. hidden, but the celebration of vulnerability is at the top. Yeah. And together, collectively, we can have a relational model of leadership, which is a strong tower. That's mm. the body of Christ. That's what we've been called to, that Paul says, you know, every, everyone plays a part in the body. Mm. We're all one body and we all serve this purpose of making Jesus known. Ultimately, the final question, which everyone's after we've talked about all of what belonging can be, what it can mean, what satisfies the need to belong? The satisfaction for belonging comes in compassion and empathy, I think, mm. that actually being known is, it's the, it's the gift of God. Yeah. You know, when God says, I know you, it's more than a statement of knowledge. It's a statement of divine love. When God says, I know you, He's saying, I love you. And when you belong, you're be you belong because you're known. Yeah. Now, in my marriage, I, I belong, but I belong because I'm known. And that's the gift. When you're in your place of work and you're known, we know you. Mm. And that, that's more than a statement of knowledge. It's a statement of affection, of compassion, of empathy. And from that place, you're dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> that is power. Mm. The place of knowledge, the place of being known. And I long for leaders to go to work and sit back, back in their chair and think, I'm known. Mm. I'm known here. And I, you know, I'm a, I'm a leader. There's challenges to leadership. It's not like everyone's going to find that easy, but, but I'm known. And from that position, I can lead. And I said that was the final question, but it's not. Who do you think this book is for? Who is your ideal reader for this book? Well, we wrote this book primarily for leaders, mm -hmm. but 
the feedback we've had is that homemakers, people who don't feel that they lead, have loved it and just really enjoyed it and said, yeah, this is for me. And so I guess I don't want to limit the audience. If there was a leader that I'd have particular compassion on, it's that leader who feels like they've faked it in and now they're just stuck and they're terrified. And I'd want to say to that leader, you, you can find a way out mm. of feeling like you have to go to work every day in whatever setting, pretending. Actually, you don't need to pretend anymore. You can, you can walk away from pretending and you can start belonging. It's not too late for you. So if, if that's you, I'd love you to read this book. Thank you so much for joining us today, Will. Thanks, Janelle. At TBN UK, we want the gospel to be in as many homes in this country as possible. Will you pray with us that we continue to work with the vision that God has given? That's one way of partnering with TBN UK. Or you can tell someone about this podcast, our 24-7 programming on Freeview Channel 65 or Sky Channel 582. You can follow us on social media or give. It costs £15 a minute to spread the gospel via TV. For more information on how to join us in sharing the love of Jesus through media, go to tbnuk.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>